Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Guys, uh, my family and I, we're getting ready to go on a trip. We're headed across the Atlantic Ocean for a wedding that's taking place in Italy this next week. And it's been this trip that we've been planning for uh, years now, I guess, if I'm being honest. Uh, it's definitely been over a year uh, that we've been saving up and planning for this trip. My sister-in-law is getting married and I get to officiate the wedding. It's very much a vacation though. There's some work involved, but it's, it's a family vacation. And uh, we're really excited about this, but the thought was kind of occurring to me Um, I'm having a hard time really looking forward to this vacation for the vacation aspect of it. Um, I know that there's been seasons and times in ministry and in life where uh, it seemed like my family and I lived for uh, going from one vacation and just eagerly looking forward to the next time we could get a break uh, and kind of just have a a respite and regather and regroup and uh, take a breath. Um, But I can honestly say under the conviction of the Holy Spirit this morning, uh, I don't feel that pressure with this upcoming vacation, this upcoming trip, um, because I'm not looking to take a break from anything that God's doing here. I'm not looking to take a break from what God's doing in this church or from the ministry that's taking place. Uh, If anything, I'm saddened by the fact that I'm going to be missing a few weeks um, because I'm so cherishing what God's doing here, where we've been in the Word, And I just want you guys to know, we're going to miss you guys, and we're looking forward to getting back, and I'll be in contact with Pastor Adam. Um, But I just want to, I want to let you know that we cherish what God's doing here, and uh, we're really looking forward to jumping in with both feet here in just a a moment when we get back from this vacation, if you will. We'll rest. Don't don't worry about us. We'll we'll eat the food, and we'll have the good times, but it's just a, a thought that was in my head this morning that I felt like I should share with you. Um, I've been particularly encouraged by where we've been in the word of the Lord here on Sunday mornings. Over the last number of weeks, we've been studying the parables. I say the last number of weeks, I kind of lead with that every week, and it's the introduction to what I'm going to talk about. But it's been uh, months now that we've been studying the parables of Jesus, specifically in regard to what he had to say about the kingdom of God. Understanding that the kingdom of God was the central theme of all of Jesus' teachings. It's what he came, first started preaching, and uh, it kind of rings true throughout the rest of the, the Gospels. That his message was about a kingdom that was coming. And uh, we've been exploring what that looks like, what that means. And Jesus used a variety of parables or illustrated stories, if you would, uh, to communicate a point, to bring home a particular truth and just uh, two weeks ago, we, we navigated out of Matthew chapter 13 into Matthew 25, where Jesus gives very uh, specific teaching um, through three different lessons, if you will. Um, I say lessons because not all of them are parables, as we'll explore today, but uh, these three teachings of Jesus, two of them are parables, um, but they're about the end of the world, and they're about the return of Jesus. You see... Um, Matthew 24, the the chapter that immediately precedes where we've been for the last few weeks, 
deals primarily with what the world is going to look like in the last days. There's been a fascination, I think, probably from the onset of humanity about the end of the world, right? Uh, I remember being in uh, elementary school and people talking about 2012, and it was upcoming because the Mayan calendar or something like that, and the end of the world was going to happen in 2012. And then I remember being a little disappointed when it didn't happen uh, in 2012. No, I'm kidding. I was like expecting something cataclysmic, right? Before that, it was like Y2K. And then, uh, you know, we have this kind of continual thing. And uh, we, we hear people, the doomsday prophets, talking about the end of the world and all of these different things. But back 2,000 years ago, Jesus was telling his followers about what it was going to look like at the end of this age, at the end of this world. And he was beginning to describe what the world was going to look like. And uh, Matthew 24 deals primarily with that. It's a shocking, it's a startling chapter, especially when you read it and you recognize things that are happening in the world around us. And you read these words of Jesus where he talks about how wickedness is going to increase because the love of many will grow cold. And you kind of examine what Jesus said in Matthew 24, what he described as the world being like right before his return. And you look at what the world looks like today when you turn on the television or you look online or you read the latest blog and you recognize there's some striking similarities there. It can be startling. Matthew 25 is Jesus' follow-up to that startling chapter where he gives three lessons that primarily deal with the return of Jesus. They all revolve around this fact that Jesus Christ is one day coming soon and he's going to return for his bride and bring righteous judgment to the earth. You know what I've noticed is that people can be okay with some of the teachings of Jesus, such as when Jesus talks about uh, you know, loving people and, and caring for others and these things that are like pretty positive or, or we really like what Jesus has to say about watching out for us uh, and when his eye is on the sparrow and him providing for us and him bringing joy and peace and happiness and all that whole thing about like eternal life, sign us up for that, right? We like a lot of what Jesus has to say and, and most of the time I, I hear people when they share the sentiment it's like, you know what, I really love Jesus, I just don't like his followers, I just don't like church. What I really have come to the conclusion of is that they don't actually know the things that Jesus said because you can't really say that and eventually get down to some of the things that Jesus says um, without some kind of conflict, <laughs> without some kind of... Uh, without some kind of abrasion to the things that Jesus would say. And I, I've noticed this, and even particularly, if I'm being honest somewhat about myself, I, I don't necessarily love these passages about judgment. I don't love the passages about Jesus coming back as a righteous judge and, and there being division and, and there, there being a, a real finite end to what's going on uh, because it makes me uncomfortable. And I have to come to terms with some of the things that I do in my life. I have to come to terms with the fact that I have been flawed and I have made mistakes. I have to come to terms with the fact that there are real people that are dying without relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's a startling thing for me to think about. 
Because Jesus talks about judgment. He talks about the end of the world. He talks about hell. <laughs> and he talks about it like it's a pretty real place. And that people are really going there. And if I'm honest, the majority of us do not actually believe in a real tangible day of judgment. We don't re really believe that there is uh, something called a lake of fire because if we did, our lives would look drastically different than the way they do right now. We might check the box on a piece of paper. We might say, if we were playing like, uh, who wants to be a millionaire? And we could answer the question correctly. But our lives wouldn't actually reflect that that's something that we believe. And it's something that startles me. These parables in Matthew chapter 25 deal with about Jesus's, uh, Jesus's immediate return. They serve as a clear warning and reminder to the followers of Jesus, one that seems lost on so much of the church today. We see this parable of the 10 bridesmaids. That's where we started two weeks ago. There's 10 virgins, the foolish and the wise. It's a, a message about preparation. It's a message about living ready and expectant of the Lord's return. Last week, we jumped into the, the parable of the ten talents, right? We, we looked at this, this message of these, of, of these servants, of the wise, uh, the, the faithful servants, and then we looked at the wicked and lazy servant, right? And we talked about stewardship. We talked about what faithfulness looks like. And it was primarily highlighting the truth that we will be held accountable for what God has graciously entrusted us with. And so this week, we're going to kind of bring this to a conclusion in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to look at this final teaching of Jesus. And it's not actually a parable, if you will. It's actually a, a, a word that is English. Put it in here. Uh, description. <laughs> it's not even like a weird word to stumble over, is it? But uh, I did. It's a description of something yet to come. It's a description of a future event. And it's this scene of judgment after the glorious second coming of Jesus that these first two parables have been talking about. What Matthew chapter 4 has been setting the stage for. And in Matthew 25, 31, this teaching begins with when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. It's this powerful introduction. This is a, a loaded statement here, and it parallels perfectly with what Jesus just spoke about in Matthew chapter 24. If you look in verse 30 of Matthew chapter 24, we see very similar language where it says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I need you to understand this. And I've revisited it again and again and again. And it may seem like I've been beating a dead horse. And you're like, oh, Pastor Nate, I get this now. But I want us to have a core conviction as followers of Jesus, as Open Door Church, um, as faithful members of his following. I want us to have this notion is that the return of Jesus is not just a fairy tale. It's easy for us to kind of think that way. It's easy for us to fall into the thinking that, well, Jesus hasn't returned in the last 20 
or 40 years when all the hoopla and the, the left behind movies came out and the prophets prophesied this and the churches told us to do this and that. And uh, it's obviously not that big of a deal because he's not returned yet. That was the same line of thinking that the early church had. We keep revisiting it in, uh, in uh, Second Peter, and I'll, I'll share that here in just a moment. But I used to really think that it didn't make a difference, that if Jesus was going to come back tomorrow or if it didn't happen for a million years, I had this naive spirit about me that uh, I would say something along the lines of, if I'm going to serve Jesus, I'm going to serve him wholeheart- wholeheartedly. And it doesn't matter when he returns, I'm just going to have that set out before me. And it doesn't really impact the way that I live my life, and it's not going to impact my faith. And I thought that that sentiment was good. You know, I used to say that genuine repentance would transpire regardless of the reality of hell. And I think that sentiment is still agreeable on a certain standard, but... Um, I believe it actually stands in contrast to scripture today because the same scriptures actually urge us to live in preparation for the Lord's return. They speak in, a, in such a powerful way. Uh, and I, I think about this. If Jesus utilizes this reality of his return and coming judgment to provoke his people to action and to love, I by no means am mature or smart enough to say that it's an improper improper motivation. The return of Jesus should provoke us to live differently. The reality of judgment should convict us to act. And don't get me wrong, I, I think I think the fear of going to hell in and of itself as a motivator for Christian service. Uh, and if that's all that it ever is, is terrible. But that coupled together with genuine love and passion for Jesus is a powerful force. And so I, I say this, I hope, you can, I hope you can track with me here. Because what we see Jesus doing in these teachings, in these parables, is he's talking about a very real reality of heaven and hell. He's talking about a very real time and place where he is going to come back and judge the world. And he's going to separate the wicked from the righteous. And there's going to be real punishment and real reward that's handed over based upon his determination on whether or not you're good or you're bad. Remember we talked about the good fish, the bad fish in the earlier parable? Uh, We see Jesus here making clear distinction between people. And as much as I would like to say that that shouldn't impact me and that shouldn't impact my love for the Lord, I cannot deny the fact that Jesus himself used it as motivation when he was preaching the gospel, when he was teaching over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so I just think it's unhealthy if that's the only motivation, if that makes sense. Can you guys track with me with that? I'd love to talk with you more about that, but uh, we don't have time. (laughs) seriously this might be one of the longest sermons that I've ever written and I'm trying to be very concise with what I'm saying here today 2 Peter 3 verses 10 through 14 says this but the day of the Lord will come like a thief the heavens will disappear with a roar the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare since everything will be destroyed in this way what kind of people ought you to be You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. 
That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So there, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. What Peter is saying here, Peter is writing uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 in response to people that are scoffing and saying Jesus really isn't coming back. He begins this letter by saying, oh, well, hold up, hold up, hold up. Jesus isn't coming back because he's patient, because he wants all to know him. He wants all to repent. He wants no one to perish. And so when you're saying, hey, he's not coming back and he's slow, he, he reminds us that a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. And he says that in the last days, people are going to scoff at this fact that Jesus is coming again. He gives this warning, but here he says in 10 through 14, he, he says that because he's coming back, because judgment is coming, because he will one day appear, what godly and holy lives we should live. He's saying because this is a real reality, that he's coming back, that it should actually motivate us to a greater level of holiness and a greater level of godliness. It says that we should make every effort because we're looking forward to his return to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. That brings us to Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to read verses 31 through 46 here. I'm going to do my best here to keep it brief this morning because I want to leave room for the Lord to do what he wants to do. In prayer, as we were um, just praying for this service today, I was so impressed by the Lord to remind us. Um, I don't want you listening to this sermon and thinking, man, I'm so glad so-and-so is here to listen to this. <laughs> Has anybody ever done that? <laughs> I've preached messages that were designed that way. I was like, man, somebody was on my heart. And I was like, this message is for them. And it seems like every time that happens, that person never shows up. That's not this today. I wrote this message for myself. When the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit really, really began to move upon my life, my prayer is that regardless of how long you've been following Jesus, regardless of how long you might have said uh, you've been on this road of Christianity, I believe that this morning, God wants to disrupt your life. You might say, well, whoa, whoa, that, that sounds, that's interesting language. I believe for a lot of us, indifference and complacency and apathy is the greatest detriment to what God wants to do in our life. And he wants to break us out of that today. So please don't, if you came in here, if everything's good, and you're like, yes, I love Jesus, my family's good, my marriage is good, everything's good, I'm just happy. Praise God, I'm stoked for that. I still believe the Holy Spirit wants to convict and challenge you today. If your life's a mess, man, you're in good company. Because the Holy Spirit wants to do something and bring restoration. Uh, even in the broken, dark, hard places and pieces. This applies to each and every one of us, and I'm excited to dig into it. But beginning in verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. 
All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me and I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he's going to say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's important to note here, this eternal fire was never prepared for mankind. It was never designed for us to go there. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. And I, I, I don't have time this morning in this, brief, uh, in this brief amount of a sermon to, to really dig into all of this, but we have in past teaching. I don't necessarily think that God just sends people to hell. I believe he has the option and he gives the option. People willingly choose where they want to go. That's a, that's a statement that we could spend a lot of time on. But for, for simplicity's sake here, when we're reading this, I need you to, to, to see this. This eternal fire was not initially designed for mankind. He made mankind to walk with him in the garden. He made mankind to have relationship with him. That was not his initial design. But we see here, Those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they also will answer. Same answer. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's something really startling and unsettling about Christian hypocrisy, is there not? The common perception amongst the culture, if you ask the majority of people, I, I've encountered this with people I've just tried to have conversation with. If you read anything online, the, the common perception of the average Christian is that they're phony, <laughs> that they're nothing but a hypocrite. In fact, I read an article this morning. I, I get news articles to my phone sometimes, and I haven't figured out, like, how they determine when they send me an article or not, but it just happens. And uh, this morning, even while I was writing my message here, I had a, 
a plastered headline from some politician that is a Christian but going through a divorce and it says something along the lines of uh, exposing their hypocrisy. The vast majority of the world, if I'm being honest, I think views Christianity, and I use that language lightly, is a bunch of kind of phony mumbo-jumbo. Has anybody experienced this, encountered this, maybe with friends, with families? Or please tell me somebody has seen this on social media. <laughs> it's not just me. I know that that was my perception of the church. And it hindered me from giving my life to Jesus. Growing up, my perception of the church was simply that people were just a bunch of hypocrites. They were a bunch of fakes. They were a bunch of frauds. And it wasn't until I saw some genuine Christians that didn't have an on and off switch that my heart was ever receptive to the message of the gospel. Everybody listen to DC Talk? I think Stephen just discovered DC Talk like a few weeks ago up at Darwin's Cabin. And he's like, man, have you heard of this new band called DC Talk? And I was like, hate to break it to you. Uh, they're older. <laughs> In their defense, they were pretty cutting edge. Um, and I say this from a guy that loves music. And if you want to describe me, I think it's uh, safe to say that I'm a music snob. And I think my music is better than everybody else's. Um, the Lord's working with me on that. It's a long process. I'm looking at Elliot because he, he, he's agreeing with me right now in the spirit. I know he is. He's, he thinks that there's a breakthrough happening here and he's rejoicing. The Lord's working on me. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. But I like DC Talk. I remember liking DC Talk in high school. And uh, I listened to uh, Jesus Freak. It was an album by them. Over and over and over and over and over and over again. I had a CD player and I had a, uh, it wasn't, yeah, I called it a Walkman, but I, I think a Walkman was actually before that. Uh, but it was a CD player and I, I'd play that CD all the time. And I'd get on the school bus and I'd listen to the CD on repeat. And I, my sophomore year of high school, I must have played that thing out into where it didn't play anymore. But there's a particular song on there called What If I Stumble." And uh, you may be familiar with it, you may not be, but there's a sample at the beginning of the song, this introduction to that song, and it's got this quote from Brennan Manning. It says this, and this is, this is a, I, I even think I sent it to Adam to put on the screen, didn't I? Wow, I'm like moving forward in life. We've got a quote on the screen, but Brennan Manning introduces the song. He says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I had a close friend in high school who's not a follower of Jesus anymore. Um, she stopped following Jesus probably a decade ago. Um, but I remember having this conversation with her. Um, she was a really dear friend, encountered the Lord in a powerful way, and she wound up working as a waitress at a particular restaurant. And one of the things that kind of led in her degradation of faith uh, was the way that she was treated by Christians working in the service industry. Because the same people that we worked with, or the same people that we went to church with, would come in after a service, or 
late at night after a youth group and treat her horribly <laughs> in terms of the service industry. You know, they wouldn't tip. They were rude and obnoxious and saw all kinds of behavior that was not befitting of someone that claims Christ. Can I be honest with you? If that's you here, like, I, I have a friend that just does not believe in tipping at all. Rudy, if you ever listen to this, I'm calling you out. <laughs> I love you to death, man, but I cannot understand your philosophy. I understand that people have all different kinds of things around that. If you're ever leaving here on a Sunday morning and you go out to eat, please, I challenge you to chip, chip, tip as generously as you possibly can. Because um, I want you to represent Jesus well, and I want you to represent our church well. I hate this, this just kind of... Uh, connotation that's associated with people that uh, are so entitled. I, I don't, it makes me sick. And I, I, this wasn't just this one particular friend of mine, but I've heard it throughout lots of people in the service industry that uh, they dread working shifts that take place after uh, church on Sunday morning because all the Christians come in and they're the worst. That's bad. You understand why that's bad, right? Like, I don't need to just tell you that that's bad and make you... Um, Represent Jesus well in the way that you're generous to people that don't even deserve it sometimes. But most of the time, your service people do. Anyway, does it make sense? Yeah. You okay with that? Can I, can I get off my soapbox now? I, talking about hypocrisy, talking about this, uh, you know, people's actions not lining up with what they say. Um, some of you know my story. I wound up actively involved in Satanism and the occult, and was a self-proclaimed hater of the church. Anything that I could think of about organized religion, I thought it was the worst. But I remember distinctly what kind of set that path into motion was I was nine years old. My parents were heroin addicts and uh, had uh, intense struggles uh, with drug abuse and just our family. But I remember going to a church because they wanted help. They wanted to change. And uh, I certainly, I, I love my parents. And they, they had their flaws. They had their faults. But I can't fault them on lack of trying. Because I truly believe that they desired something different. But I remember going into this church. And I sat down in the foyer. And it was this nice fancy church and this comfy chair. While my parents went in to go meet with the pastor. And they were asking for prayer. My mom believed in Jesus. She got saved during the Jesus movement. She really wanted something different for her life. And I remember her going in to meet with the pastor. And they, they, they sent us away at one point in time and said to come back. And so we came back and met with the pastor. And they met for about 30 minutes. And I remember sitting in that the little church secretary's office. And it was really awkward. But I remember my parents come out and... Uh, they had spent some time in prayer with the pastor, but the, the church secretary had printed off an invoice and gave it to my parents for pastoral counseling. And even in my nine-year-old brain, and even to my drug-addicted parents, there was something very wrong with that picture. And we never stepped back into a church <laughs> after that. Um, it was very obviously... If you guys don't think that's wrong, it's wrong. Just saying. If you ever come to me 
and you need prayer or you need counseling, you are not going to get a bill from our church. <laughs> we didn't have any money, so it didn't get paid, but it was the very act of it. It was just uh, bizarre, but it really set me up for having a jaded perspective of the church, a jaded perspective of God. And I believe, honestly, that the, the, that the next six years of my life could have looked drastically different had that encounter gone differently. I could have started serving Jesus a lot sooner than I did. I could have missed out on a lot of pain and heartbreak, and I'm obviously thankful to the Lord for how he intervened in my life, but it's important that we take the way that we live seriously. And don't expect that just because we claim Christianity, we claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that it excuses our behavior. Does that make sense? People fall into that mentality, and it's a lie straight from hell. Because how we love others is a big deal to Jesus. The genuine mark of the Christian is that of love for others. John 13, 35 tells us, By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And I'm not just talking about like, oh, you permit them or you get along. We're talking about sacrificial love, right? This is what we see demonstrated here in Matthew chapter 25. We see it in practically caring for others' needs. It's the criteria that the good shepherd uses to, shep to shepherd. <laughs> to separate his sheep from the goats. This would probably be a good point to, to make this note, that neither the sheep nor the goats recognized what they were doing as being unto the Lord. They were just genuinely living everyday life as they would live it. It wasn't that they were seeking out something special. They were both shocked and confused when the king says to them, as often as you did this to the least of, uh, to the least of these, you were doing it to me. That, that caught them both off guard. That was a surprise to both of them. They were both surprised and confused by their commendation and their condemnation, respectfully. I think it's for this reason the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 13 that we should let brotherly love continue and do not forget to entertain strangers. For by doing so... Some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in body also. We see this very clear surprise on their faces, the shock to them that they're being held accountable for what they did to others, not just for what they did to God. It's popular um, like church Mottos. I think we even had it painted up on our wall at some point in time that our church mission was to love God and love others. I remember being um, in, it would have been middle school. I wasn't quite yet a Christian, but I had remembered somebody tell me uh, that we only love God as much as we love our worst enemy. I looked up the, the origins of that quote, and it comes from a lady by the name of Dorothy Day. She's a Catholic and an anarchist. Um, so I'm learning all kinds of fascinating things about her uh, as I was looking up this quote this morning because I was like, man, I'm really interested in who said this and what they believe. So I'm by no means endorsing or condemning this lady because I don't know enough about her. But she makes the statement that you only love God as much as you love the person you love the least. 
And I don't necessarily, I think theologically that might break down somewhere. And, but something to, to chew on. And I remember being um, enamored with that idea. But we see here this commandment to love others. It being a big deal to Jesus. And he doesn't just say love others with some kind of compassionate heart with an emotional aspect. But there was a real practical aspect to how they loved other people or loved the least of these, right? We see this practical application of love being put into practice that is a litmus test for authentic, genuine Christianity. Guys, I'm a big Keith Green fan. Uh, we talked DC Talk. Now we're going to talk Keith Green. You don't know who Keith Green is. Uh, he was a musician in the 70s, um, passionate follower of Jesus. We sang one of his songs this morning. Adam sang one of his songs that, Oh Lord, you're beautiful. I'll give you homework. If you don't know who Keith Green is, you should. Um, regardless of whatever genre of music you like, uh, you should know who Keith Green is because uh, he was wildly influential um, and made good Christian music before we knew that Christian music could be good. Um, anyway, but he has a song. And called, it's called The Sheep and the Goats. Um, and he literally sings through this passage of Scripture. Um, that's all he does is he sings through this passage of Scripture. and uh, He's a phenomenal pianist. And uh, it's, a little, it's a little quirky. It's a little wonky. It's a little wild. But at the end, he says this. And the only thing that he really adds to this song um, is at the very end, he makes this statement. He says, the only difference between the sheep and the goats, according to the scripture, is what they did and didn't do. And I think it's interesting that the king here, in this story, in this, uh, is this teaching of Jesus, he isn't separating people based on what they say they believe but on what they actually do. In fact, this is a continual theme of Jesus coming to judge. Um, and he, he consistently, uh, the language used in scripture is that Jesus is going to judge us based upon what we do, based upon our works. If you remember Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, this doesn't, this doesn't really equate super well with the way that we want to talk about uh, the Lord knowing what's in our heart. I think a lot of the times we, we look at people and, and we excuse bad behavior because they have good intentions. And I think that that's something that, that, that is a human notion where we, where we look at people and we'll justify maybe what they did because we knew the heart behind it was good, even if what actually happened was bad, right? We've experienced this sentiment. You know what I'm talking about here. And, and, and we look at this and I think we apply it to the Lord where we say he knows what's in our heart. He knows what's in our heart and the Bible says it's wickedly and deceitfully evil. <laughs> he says that, that scripture alone is what can judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart and it's not a good thing. Can I tell you, there are going to be plenty of people with good intentions that wind up on the wrong side of judgment. Hmm. There's a real separation, a real judgment 
And it ultimately isn't based upon the good intentions of a person, but what they actually wind up doing. This, we don't like this because we know what we do. And we know what we do doesn't always line up with what we want to do. The Apostle Paul even struggled this, with this. He said, I don't do what I want to do, and I do do what I don't want to do. In a different words, but... I think we're quick to use the excuse it's what's in the heart that counts. There's going to be plenty of people that have great hearts that really mean the best that are still going to hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. And we would like to say that that's not fair. We'd like to try to place a clause upon the Lord and say, you know what, God, that's, uh, you know what, that's not good. But in the same way, I think there's going to be, let me read the scripture. Let me not get ahead of myself. Jesus. I'm going to read a lengthy passage of scripture here before we jump into talking about this. So, so stay with me, track with me. Let that sit in your mind. If you're sitting there disagreeing with that statement right now, I promise it's going to come full circle and make sense. But in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 12, I'm going to read a good chunk of scripture here. It says this, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, take note of this, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and he shall be his people. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. And he says, verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said to me, Write these words. Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water to, I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I read this passage and I read it in its entirety because I want, you to, I want you to track with me. I want you, one, to see the severity of what's at stake. But two, I need you to know that I'm not saying that you can earn your salvation by being good enough or doing enough righteous acts or enough 
good, kind deeds. Can I tell you there are plenty of people that are humanitarians out there that serve uh, the needs of the poor and the lowly better than most Christians. But I, I, need you to, I need you to understand that alone is not enough. I'm not saying any of this in the least bit, but what I did hear it described in such a way that I think was most helpful was in the statement that real sheep will produce real wool. A goat isn't going to produce wool that will keep you warm, but a sheep will. And what I see uh, outlined in this passage in Matthew chapter 25 is there is a natural byproduct of those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ where their genuine love is going to be motivated to action. And it's judging the fruit based upon the root. And so many of us, and that's why Jesus consistently again and again and again and again prioritizes this thing of bearing fruit, of making sure there's something to be shown for what you say you believe. Because Jesus isn't interested in people who just say that they have faith in him without actually demonstrating it in the rest of their lives. And this is hard because we read stuff like this and it begins to become convicting to me when I think about the poor and when I think about the needy and I think about my involvement with those that are the least of these. And I want Jesus to be able to disrupt my life. I want him to be able to bring some level of uncomfortableness to me because if I'm comfortable with this, I think it's a dangerous place to be. I believe genuine belief in Jesus is going to affect the way that you love other people. And if it hasn't, I would urge you to surrender that to the Lord because there's plenty of people who can check a box on paper but have zero love for others when it comes to actual practical application. And it's startling and it's scary, right? First John 4.20 tells us that if someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? The great danger in all of this, I believe, is indifference. Apathy. Complacency. It's what I've been praying for the Lord to disrupt in my heart and my prayer for you this morning is that you would allow the Holy Spirit to disrupt it in yours. Because if there's anything that Matthew chapter 25 teaches us is that we cannot be negligent, indifferent to his coming, but we need to be proactive, be good stewards of what he entrusts us with and be diligent about demonstrating God's love to others. The condemnation of the goats in this teaching wasn't on account of the wrong that they did. When we think about sin, I think we often think about the bad things that we do, right? We think about sin and we think about all oh, that affair that I had or don't take sound bites when I'm preaching. I realize I did not have an affair using this rhetorically. Adam said I need to be more careful about that. We think about sin in such a way, we think about things that we're not supposed to do, right? 
think about sin is, oh, well, we maybe think of the Ten Commandments of, you know, don't take the Lord's name in vain, don't kill people, that kind of stuff, right? But there are also sins of omission. There are sins that take place when we don't do what we're supposed to do. In fact, James would tell us in James 4.17 that if anyone knows the good they ought to do and they don't do it, it is for them sin. Might be something that we would describe as a sin of an action, a sin of a mission, because there are things that God expects us to do that He requires of His followers that many of us just don't feel like doing. And if you're over here saying, you know what, I don't sleep with other people, I'm not doing drugs. I'm not murdering people. I'm not doing these wrong things. I'm not sinning in this sense, but you're not loving other people in a practical, sacrificial way like what Jesus describes here. You're missing out. You're not just missing out. You're missing the mark. And I believe we're in a dangerous place with our relationship with the Lord if that's us. I'm not saying that what we need to do here is go out and find every guy that's holding a sign on the street corner and feel bad and remember what Pastor Nate preached on and give that guy five bucks so we don't feel guilty. That can sometimes be the natural reaction. Uh, and I think it has been in the past when I've read this passage of scripture, that's been the natural tendency of me is to remember that and think about these people that Oh, man, I, I better give that bum five bucks because, you know what? Someday that could be Jesus. I think it moves past that, and it stretches a lot farther than that. And I believe the inconvenience this kind of loving people brings our lives is, is noteworthy, <laughs> but it's necessary. I think it's, I think it's important to note this, the, the progression of these three parables, beginning there in Matthew 25 and in verse 1 where we see the parable of the, the ten virgins, the bridesmaids. And if you guys don't remember, I, you can look back at our podcast, but I, I taught about how at, it begins this way because Jesus is highlighting the necessity of relational intimacy with God. He's talking about how, how there needs to be intentionality and preparation of being ready for the Lord's return because when he shows up, when the bridegroom shows up to receive the, the bridesmaids and half of them aren't there because they're foolish and they don't have oil and they stand there at the door and knocking and says, depart from me, I never knew you. And there was this lack of knowledge of who God was. There was this lack of intimacy. And I'm doing my very best to, to briefly convince, condense this here for the sake of this message. But um, there was a, a lack of knowing God personally. There was a lack of relational intimacy, of being connected with God there. And then last week, we looked at the parable of the talents. And, and we looked at, well, what does living ready actually look like? And we saw this need and this call to stewardship. The fact that, that, the, the, that the stewards were entrusted with something. They were entrusted with a gift from God. Just like each and every one of us here in this room have been entrusted with something from the Lord. And rather than playing the comparison game like, oh, we're not good enough. We're not talented enough. We don't have enough resources to do what so-and-so does down the street. We understand that God actually expects us to do something in the waiting. 
We're not just sitting blindly around waiting for God to, to come and rapture his church. We're to be proactive about advancing the kingdom. We're to be proactive about doing something with what he's given us. And we see this natural progression of stewardship, uh, this natural progression of stewardship and, and, and inconveniencing ourselves to love one another. And we see it kind of come to culmination here in this final teaching of Jesus of what does that work actually look like? What, what, what kind of practical application does it have in our life? What kind of practical application does it have in the life of the believer? And I see it here where Jesus is saying you should feed the sick or you should feed the hungry. You should take care of the sick. You should visit those in prison. You should clothe those who are naked. You should look after the least of these. You should be motivated with compassion and love people practically. Obviously, there's more than that. I believe in preaching the gospel. I believe in sharing the good news of Jesus. But if we miss that simple part of it, it's really hard to do the, the kingdom part well. I think the progression there is lined out in such a way because if we're not first rooted in the place of intimate relationship, of having knowledge for the Lord, we'll never be able, or having relationship with the Lord, we're never going to be able to be effective in a capacity that loves sacrificially like what's expected of the sheeps at the end of this chapter because we will not have the heart of God. It will be impossible to sustain compassion upon the poor and upon the needy without first grasping his heart. Because as much as I'd love to read this passage and I sit down and say, I got to get to work. There are sick people in our community. There are poor people in our community. There are people that need, uh, need practical ministry to their physical needs and and Jesus says, if I, if I do it to them, then it's like I'm doing it to God himself. I, I need to get to work. And while that sentiment's good, it cannot be sustained outside of the place of relationship and daily connection with the Holy Spirit. There's one thing that I would so desire for us. Is that Open Door Church wouldn't be filled with hypocrisy. Of those that are quick to say we love Jesus, but turn a blind eye at the need of our neighbor. Or those that are in need. I don't have all the answers. I don't have the the perfect strategy in order to do that. I'm not here with some kind of social, social justice mantra to, to set wrong things right. But I am willing to ask the Holy Spirit for more of his heart. His heart for our community, his heart for our people. This letter that I have here is really special to me. I've received a handful of uh, letters 
in my time in the ministry. Probably an equal proportion of them have been pretty nasty in telling me what I'm doing wrong. Can I just tell you, there's nothing more encouraging as a pastor to get a letter that says, Dear Brother in the Lord, you're terrible at your job. And these are the reasons why. Every once in a while, I get a letter. I think I've probably had about three like this, but this is by far one of the most special ones that I've had in the last 12 years. It's from a young man named Samuel. And I met Sam over here at the Giant. It's now a Speedway. It was a Giant seven years ago where I met him, and I could tell that he had been traveling through, and he had this backpack that was just completely broken, and he was trying to carry some of his belongings. And um, For whatever reason, I just felt the compassion of the Lord for this young man. And uh, I started talking to him and invited him over. I just felt like, man, this guy probably hasn't had a home-cooked meal in a really long time. I'm just going to invite him over for lunch. Didn't talk to Kelly. We had a, a one-year-old son. So this would have been five years ago, not seven. Finn was one. We had just moved into the parsonage over here. Adam had just left. Is that five years ago? Four years ago? I think that's five. Time frame is irrelevant here. Um, but I invited him over for lunch and I made him some soup. And we got to talking and he started sharing his story with me. And uh, I didn't have much to give him or anything like that, but I just felt compelled by the Lord that, man... This guy just needs, needs to experience the love of Jesus. And I didn't do anything wildly inconvenient. I gave him a shower and got him a backpacking backpack that I had in the shed. And gave him a new sleeping bag and gave him 60 bucks. And prayed with him and told him if he ever needed a place to stay, he could stay. And he's like, well, it's supposed to rain tonight. Can I sleep here at the church? I said, sure, man. <laughs> he, was like, he asked if he could sleep outside at the church. I was like, you don't need to sleep outside at the church. I've got a nice air mattress. We'll set you up in my office. I set him up in my office, and uh, you know, I met with him the next morning and got him some food and sent him on his way. Nothing, nothing too crazy there. You know, it wasn't, wasn't anything wild, but I did have a particular lady come in later that afternoon and uh, tell me that we don't do anything for the homeless and how I uh, had this word of the Lord for me that just ripped me up and down. <laughs> awesome. Christians are so nice. But I, I saw him go home, or I, I saw him off, and just prayed for Samuel. And seven years, or seven, seven years ago, a few weeks ago, I got this letter in the mail. And... Uh, Samuel gave his life to the Lord. And uh, he decided to turn himself in for some outstanding warrants. And uh, was in the El Paso County Jail and was spending time with the Lord and felt like, I need to write a letter to those that showed me Christ's kindness while I was on the road. He wrote me this long letter here just about how much that meal meant to him how much me giving him $60 meant to him. And uh, he's now following Jesus today. 
I'm really, really encouraged for that. I'm really, really grateful for that. But I just want to encourage you. It's not something that needs to be... Um, it's not just something that we can always throw money at. It's not just something that we can uh, write a check and think it's somebody else's problem or some organization's problem to figure out. I believe that the compassionate heart of the Father wants to motivate us to see the Samuels all around us. And that's not an easy thing to do because you will get hurt, you will get burned. I can tell you for every story of Samuel that I have, I've probably got 20 more of people that I've tried to show and demonstrate Christ's kindness to that burned me. Man, I see Stan over here nodding with me. I know, I know you've been through the ringer, man, of being persistent, but if we're connected with the heartbeat of God, it keeps us from being cynical. And that's the only thing that will keep us from that place because we'll get burned, we'll get hurt. There are going to be people that aren't appreciative of it. But at the end of the day, I believe a genuine motivating factor or a genuine identifying factor of a Christian that has been transformed by the love of God is going to be demonstrated in action by how they care for the least of these. There's real judgment. There's real separation. There's real... There's real consequence if that's not the case. The only way we prevent that from being the case is being filled with him, staying close to him, being prompted and led by him. We need his help for that. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.